As we continue in worship now in the, the Word of God, I uh, want to bring us to 1 John chapter 3. We've been in this series uh, that we've entitled Living in the Light, looking uh, through this great letter of uh, the book of 1 John and uh, trying to understand what it means to live in the light. And as we've been going through this series, uh, this book questions and challenges some of the presuppositions we have as believers to get us thinking about whether our Christianity is really the true and vibrant Christianity that God calls uh, us to live out and to be. And uh, one of the things that we've been challenged with over and over again, and we knew this going into this book as I've articulated, this is not an easy book for us as believers to hear. And uh, it's amazing because the theme of the book uh, seems so wonderful and glorious, and yet we're in the middle of this book, and, and this book has beaten us up. And I want us to look at, just turn a page to the end of 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I want to look at what the theme verse of this uh, book is, and then talk about why is this book beating us up so much if this is the theme. This is what John tells his readers. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. The whole reason for the writing of 1 John is to give the children of God assurance. Now, I have to be honest with you. There have been numerous people that have come to me and say, I don't feel very assured by what you're preaching. Uh, To be honest with you, I have, in this book of assurance, doubted my faith more than I ever have before. I walk out, I walk in thinking I'm doing pretty good in my Christian life, and then you've got me beat up walking out. Now, I want to be careful, because the theme is that we would have assurance. But I also want you to know that the way John gives us that assurance is walking us through some tests. And so I want you to think back to your days in school when you were uh, going and learning about things. How did the teacher know that what you were learning actually was uh, uh, something you understood? They would bring you a test and they'd say, here is the test. This is going to uh, tell you where your progress is in this. And if you got an F after the test was done, you recognized that you had failed the test. You weren't ready for what was being asked of you. Well, just like in 1 John, three tests are given to us. And these three tests are going to gauge whether or not we are truly in Christ or not. And so when we pass these tests, there should be a deep sense of assurance. I am in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have passed the test by his grace and his mercy. And now my concern needs to be to continue to pass the tests that come that the Lord leads my way. And so I want to make sure that, uh, that we are assured of our salvation. But I also want to make it very clear that if you go through these tests, and you see failures in this, and it's ongoing, then I want you to ask the question, not should I be assured, but what do I need to do to get that assurance? And the only way that you can do that is to start passing the tests. And that means bowing the knee to Jesus Christ and giving your life over to him so that you will know that as you live lives of righteousness, that you can point and not say, look at how great I am, But look at your Lord Jesus Christ and say, what a great work he has done. He has allowed me to pass the test. And so in some ways I want to give great assurance to those who are children of God. But to those who maybe have been riding the fence, who have been living a double life, 
I want you to question every aspect of your faith. As a preacher of the Word of God, I want you to recognize that not, every on that, not everyone on that day that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's a tough, that's a tough thing for us to understand. The first service, I've got to be honest with you, uh, about 10 minutes into it, I wanted to walk away from the pulpit because I didn't see a lot of happy faces from the congregation. And that doesn't happen very often. And I knew that this message was coming. I, I recognized the, the struggle of it. But this is not something that we're going to walk away and say, boy, that, that was the greatest message I've ever heard of the preacher. Man, that just makes me want to stand up and shout. This is a testing of our faith. And the testing is good because it's going to produce something in us. And it's my prayer today that this testing that goes on, that you won't get mad at me. I mean, that's fine. I get used to it. But, but I would pray that you would really question your own heart this morning and ask the question, am I where God wants me to be? And not to get uh, worried about where everybody else is at, but where you're at. I'm going to ask that you would stand as we look at this text to understand what God's Word has to teach us this morning. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 10 is where we're going to read. Our text will be verses 7 through 10 this morning. This is what the Word of God says. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that He appeared so that He might take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Here's our text for the morning. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do, who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. Father God, we come to a very difficult passage this morning. And Lord, it's difficult because it's hard for us to hear these things. Lord, all week I've fought long and hard. Though my life at times has sin in it, that I need to recognize that when I sin, as we learned last week, I'm living in contradiction to everything that you have shown me about who you are and and how you have called me to live. And Lord, you're telling us today that there's no in-between that there's no middle ground, that we are either your children or we are followers and children of the devil. Lord, this isn't easy in our individualistic society, in our Western thought, that you would put us in such incredibly different camps, but you do that. And Lord, I pray that today, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, that it would convict our hearts that we would not look to the people sitting next to us But first, look to ourselves and ask the question, who is my father? And if we answer that and respond, that it would not just be because we professed something long ago, but that we can see that we are either of our father in heaven because we live righteous and upright lives and walk as your son Jesus did, or Lord, we follow the ways of this world who is led by the prince of the power of the air. 
the Lord, the spirit that is at work in those who are disobedient. Father, today's decision day, a day that we must understand and know who our family is and what we're called to do. So Lord, I pray that it would not be through my words that would convict hearts, but Lord, that you by your spirit would agitate even my heart this morning as you've done all week so that I would know how you've called me to live as your child. In Christ's name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. You know, we live in a a society of a great divide. In a group of people like this, there's no doubt that on any particular issue, we would find ourselves siding on one of two places. We have preferences, we have desires, we've made decisions that we are going to pursue a certain way of thinking, a purchasing of certain products, and, and it divides us, whether we like it or not. I, I did this in the, in the first service, and I, I want to do a little uh, set of tests, uh, if you will, to see how divided we are. And there's only one uh, of these that uh, wasn't all that divided. I won't tell you which one. But as I do these, I want you to raise your hand if you uh, align yourself with one or the other. And so I'll walk you through this. It's very simple. Raise your hand if you do this. I want to find out, when you listen to the radio, are you an AM person or an FM person? Okay, so show a show of hands if your predominant taste uh, of radio stations is of the AM variety. Let's see a show of hands, okay? How about FM? Okay, we got a little division. It was more 50-50 in the first service. Uh, now let's, let's try another one. Uh, when you're driving down the road and you need something to eat and a burger sounds good and there's a McDonald's and a Burger King, which one are you going to go to? How many are McDonald's people? How many are Burger King people? Okay, we've got some division, all right? You don't hear this much from a preacher to divide the congregation, but I'm going to do it nonetheless. How about when you need to go shopping for something? Are you a Target person or a Walmart person? How many are Target people? Okay. Is it, man, half of the week, you're all Target people, huh? All right. And then how about Walmart? Okay. Well, we're divided. All right. Now, the next one that I want to look at, and I didn't think this would be that big, and it brought up a lot of conversation. When you go to the grocery store and you're asking for your groceries to be put away, are you asking for paper or plastic? How many are paper people here? How many are plastic people? I got yelled at in the first one that I didn't bring up the green bags. How many are green bag people? Well, it's a growing thing. I had no idea. All right. Then the other one that I want to ask, and this one uh, got some uh, involvement. How many of you are Apple computer fans? And see, it's funny. It's funny. Let me just speak to that. But how many are PC fans? Okay, see, they're, they're, a, they're a vocal minority, those Apple people. You know that? They just want you to know they spent four times more than you did on a computer. Amen? Amen. All right. Okay. When you go on the internet, do you go to Google or do you go to Yahoo? How many are Yahoo fans? Okay. How many are Google fans? You Google people aren't going to be happy you raise your hand in a couple moments when I bring up another illustration, but that we'll leave it at that. Now, the most important one of all uh, comes to uh, our baseball teams. Now, this is a true test if you guys want to get any food today. So make your decision well, all right? You up for it? Okay. So how many of you are uh, Southside fans? 
How many of you are Northside fans? Dodgers. Okay, so which one do you think I am? Southside? No lunch for you. There's only one team in the Chicago area, and that's the Chicago Cubs. There's a couple minor league teams, the Cougars and the Sox, but that's it. Okay? Al, I don't know who said that, but I'm sure you got that, and that will be the mention of uh, our elder meeting, you know. I'd ask that you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew 18. It's the church discipline passage. We're divided people, okay? We're divided. As, as choices come our way, we're divided people. That illustration is just simply a fun way of saying that on any particular thing, we will find a division among us. I had the privilege uh, this last week of going down to Springfield and giving the opening invocation for our state senate. And I will tell you, there is not a place more politically charged right now, I think even more so than in Washington, than in Springfield, with all this budget stuff and everything that's going on. The young lady, the aide that was uh, uh, escorting us around uh, was from Alabama, and she had just recently moved up here. And we were talking about uh, the difference between living in Alabama and now here in Illinois. And she said, it is amazing how politically divided this state is. It's a war that's going on. And there's no doubt in surveys that tell us that America is a divided country. And I don't want to get into the politics and all that. That's not what the pulpit's for. But I want us to understand something. If we think that's what divides us, then we've got another thing coming. Because John is telling us today that there is something that divides every man, woman, and child into two camps. Notice what it says in verse 10. And this is where I want to address for the rest of the time. This is what John says. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. John says you're in one of two camps. You're either a child of God or you're a child of the devil. I want you to throw up the first slide in the PowerPoint. And that is, is that we are either the children of the devil or we are the children of those, who, we are children who have been delivered. There are two places we can be. Now, as people, we would love a third option. We would love to say, I'm not of the devil. Look at me. I, I don't wear uh, a, a red uh, suit uh, and uh, a pitchfork and I don't have horns and a tail. I'm not of the devil. But as you think about your life, you could say, you know what? I'm not sure that I could really call myself one who walks as Jesus did, one who is righteous just as he is righteous. And so, Tim, isn't there a middle ground? Isn't there an in-between, you know, not so bad but not so good? John says you're either one or the other. It's very similar to Jesus when he speaks to one of the churches in Asia Minor in, in the first couple chapters of the book of Revelation. He says... I got a real problem with you speaking to a particular church. You're neither hot nor cold. You're in between. And there's a lot of us that want to be in between. We want to be in the middle where it's cozy and comfortable. But John says you're either one or the other. Jesus said you're not going to serve two masters. You're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. And so he breaks us up into these two camps that we need to now reconcile. The question I want you to ask yourself over and over and over again this morning is, am I a child of God 
who has God's seed remaining in me, or am I a child of the devil? That's harsh. That's tough. That's not easy to preach. But I want you to ask that question over and over again, and I want you to give reasons in your own thinking why you believe you're one or the other. What makes you think that you're a child of God? What do you do? What are the things that are a part of you that you say, you know what, the reason why I believe that I can have this confidence is because of this, that, and the other thing. And give reasons why you believe that. John tells us there are two ways that we can live. We can follow God, or we can follow the evil one. Now, as we look at this, I'd be remiss, and I want to move through this quickly, that this passage of Scripture is very controversial. It's controversial because of its interpretation that has been taken many different ways. There are seven major interpretations uh, to a particular verse in this text. Look at verse 9 for a moment, and then I want to give you, I want to answer two questions this morning, and then we're going to be done. This is what verse 9 says. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he has been born of God. There are seven interpretations. I'm going to give you four because the seven have uh, variations into four major ones. The first one is, the way you can interpret this is the way that Roman Catholics interpret it, is that the idea here of what John is saying is that we as Christians uh, can sin. No one will deny that, uh, that a believer will have the issue of sin in their life. But we have to deal with what does John mean that uh, he will not sin because God's seed remains in him. What Roman Catholics will say is that this is the important element of understanding the breakup of sin or the division of sin. And so in Roman Catholic theology, they say that you can be a Christian and you can uh, be a part of what they call venial sins. These are uh, sins, light sins. You, you didn't do what you were supposed to. Maybe you told a white lie. Maybe you uh, uh, were a little more exaggerating on, on how big the fish that you caught this uh, weekend at the lake. You know, these are small things. And they affect your relationship with God, but they're not terrible things. And so they have the first one is venial sins. That a Christian will, will uh, commit venial sins, but what a Christian cannot do, Roman Catholic theology says... They cannot commit mortal sins. And so there's a difference. Well, mortal sins, of course, are things like adultery, things like murder, and the like. Well, that's a problem with that because nowhere in John's writings, and and likewise, nowhere in the Bible do we see any kind of artificial breakdowns of sins. And so it would be hard-pressed to interpret that passage of Scripture saying that we will only sin certain types of sins. Now, the second thing that we see, the second position is the idea that comes when people start elevating the issue of the two natures of a believer. In the life of a believer, we have the old nature and the new nature. Paul talks about this uh, numerous times in his writings. He talks about that we are a new creation uh, in heaven. We're new creation because of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, some believe that what this means is the following, that the regenerated new nature cannot sin. And so what they do is they say, okay, Tim is broken down into two people, the old Tim and the new Tim, okay? And what happens is, is when Tim tells a lie, or Tim has an, an, an unrighteous thought, or Tim uh, does something that goes against God's word, it's not Tim's redeemed nature that does it, but it's Tim's 
old nature that does that. Now, that that sounds okay. That, That doesn't sound all that bad. Here's the problem with it. When I get confronted about that sin, I now have an out. Because now I can say, well, why did you do that heinous thing? Why did you sin in that way? I could say, you know what? That really wasn't the inside of me, but it was the outside of me. It's the old nature, and that old nature doesn't know what to do. And so you can't get all that mad at me because it's my old nature that I'm trying to fight against. But the new nature, I'm completely sinless in that new nature because I can't do those things. This is a lot. This is very close to the idea of what was going on uh, in first century uh, writings with John because this is Gnosticism. Remember, the flesh is evil and the spirit is good. And so you could do whatever you wanted in the life of the flesh but you could talk about how great your spiritual walk was, walk was with Jesus Christ. And that doesn't mesh. We cannot say, well, you know what? The reason why I said the thing I did is my tongue, it's a sinful tongue. And, and the rest of me is fine, but I'm not to blame because it was my tongue's fault. We can't do that. When we sin, it's a whole working of who we are as a human being. We can't blame one part of us and not the other. The third position that is brought out in this interpretation quickly is the idea that it is possible through a life of abiding for us to attain a sinless perfection. This was uh, some teaching uh, in the later later years of John Wesley's life. John Wesley, one of the uh, starters of the Methodist uh, denomination. And and what he believed was if we truly uh, pursue the life of righteousness and the life of abiding, that we can come to a certain level of sinless perfection. Now, I'm a fan of John Wesley. I disagree with him wholeheartedly in this because if this was plausible, then John would have articulated what that life looked like. He would have articulated how exactly we get there, and he wouldn't have spent the first two chapters talking about what we do when we sin. If we were to pertain, if we were to uh, pursue this ideal of perfection, he wouldn't have spent so much time, like he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But when we sin, we need to confess our sins because he is faithful and just. Over and over again in the first two chapters of First John, we see John saying, how do we deal with sin? Not how do we deal with perfection. And so that interpretation seems to go against what John is saying in the rest of the book. The final one uh, that we have is the motive behind our sinning. Quite simply, that if you sin, you don't mean to do it. It just happens. It's a sin of omission. That the Christian will not willfully and deliberately sin. The problem with that is, is that we look at just one character in the Bible, that being David. David had a, had a, a sin of adultery and the sin of murder on, on his record. And both of them were willful and both of them were deliberate. And both of those came from a man named a guy after God's own heart. And so we have to understand that, yes, Christians will sin. They will sin deliberately. They will sin willfully. They may even sin greater and more heinous sins than even the unbelievers around them. And so what then do we do with verse 9 of 1 John chapter 3? It's the following, and this is what we believe as a church, and this is what it is. What is the proper interpretation? It comes back to the original Greek language. When John articulates it, see, the problem with some of these earlier understandings was the translation. What they would translate in some of the earlier translations were the following. Verse 9. No one who is born of God sinneth. That's what the King James Bible would say. Because God's seed remains in him, 
He cannot sin because he's been born of God. And notice what the NIV does, the New, NI, or the, um, the New Living Translation, the ESV, the NAS. They help us out in getting, bringing out the text of the original language. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. What is John saying? John is saying that if we are children of God, that we will not live lives of habitual and ongoing sin. That sin will not characterize who we are, but it will be our righteousness. It will be our goodness, because we will walk as Jesus did. And so we need to understand that to be a child of God means that we will live a life characterized by the things of God. And so when you sin, that does not mean that you are now out of the favor of God, now out of grace from God. You're out of fellowship, and that fellowship needs to be uh, fixed through confession of sin and repentance. But at that point, you have not given up your salvation. And so the child of God is one who does not live a life of sin, but one who lives a life of righteousness. So what do we do with this? Now that we understand it, there are two questions that need to be asked. Number one. Throw the question up there. Why are we so easily deceived about who is in which group? Now, John makes it clear we're either one or the other. Now, I want you to look around for a moment, and I want you to look at the people sitting around you, and I want you to ask the question, how do you know whether they are children of God or children of the devil? Look around, take the moment, and look around, look at people, smile at them, wave at them, say, I'm judging your hearts and motives right now. But really look at them. What, what tells you that those people are who they say they are? What do people think of you? What do I think of this microphone right now? What, what, what characteristics do they see in you that they would say you are a child of God and not a child of the devil? Now notice what verse 7 says because this is where the deception comes. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. What was John dealing with? John was dealing with a church that had people in it who professed Jesus but had nothing in their life that proved that profession to be true. Let me tell you something. That's no different than Village Bible Church. There's no doubt in this place today people who are listening to my words and are saying, you know what, I can't wait until he shuts up so we can get out of here and go home. And I don't know why you're here, and there may be a million reasons why you're here. Maybe to please mom and dad or please your spouse because the kids need a place to go because you've got nothing else better to do on Sunday mornings or you just like being here because the people are nice. Whatever it is, there's no doubt that there are people in our midst. Jesus talked about this. He said there are wheat and there are tares, and they look the same. And until you start shaking them, until you start dealing with them, you're not going to know one from the other. And so why is it that we are so easily deceived? Because the people in John's day were deceived. Who is of God? Everybody seems to use the same kind of terminology. Everybody seems to say that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. But when I look at their life, it doesn't seem to add up. So John, who are the children of God? John addresses that. But before he does, we need to understand why we're so easily deceived. And there are three things I want you to pull from this in your outlines. Number one, why are we so easily deceived about who's in which group? First of all, because we live in what I want to call superficial Christianity. 
When we come to church or when we're a part of this walk of faith, we need to recognize right now in the church, not just village, but probably in most American churches, our spirituality is an inch deep. Think about that for a moment. How do we determine the faith of those that we're worshiping with? We look around and people that come to church, we assume that they're believers. Why? Well, they come to church. Why would any, why would any child of the devil want to come to church? Why would they want to be a part of what's going on in the church? And really, Tim, have you met them? They're very nice people. They look, they're well-dressed. They seem all put together. Their kids are smiling. There doesn't seem to be infighting. They seem to not have any open or blatant sin in their lives. At least I haven't seen anything that I would know of that would uh, cause me to question their faith. You know, it, it seems like they read enough about Christian uh, literature. It seems that they uh, listen to Christian music. They seem to be singing during the worship times. They must be a believer. Have you noticed how surface level all that is? We don't really know the person sitting next to us where they're at because our Christianity in our culture today goes totally against that. Don't get deep with me because I want to come in, enjoy the service, and I want to take off. And that's all I want. And so we really don't know who the Christians are if we just look at it from those superficial ways. Number two, secret ambitions. The other problem that we have that this deception brings forth is the idea that we can all put on a good front. We put on nice clothes, we come to church, and we smile, and people ask how things are going. We say things are going great. Isn't God good? Isn't God wonderful? And little do we know, whether it's us or someone else, whether they're hiding something. I was watching some uh, months ago, CNBC had a uh, documentary on the whole Google Corporation. And one of the things that was brought up, one of the fears about a corporation like Google is the concern of what would happen with the information that Google has. So you say, what information does Google have? Google, just so you know, keeps for three years a record of where you, their user, have gone. Every web page, everything you've looked at, they've got a record of it. Not only do they have a record of it, but they have an IP address that links you to what you've gone and looked at. And one of the questions was, what happens if Google's information got out to the wrong people? And the CEO of Google said this, a catastrophe that the world has never seen. Why? Marriages would break up. People would be fired. Uh, All kinds of issues. Why? Because the searching through that computer is reflecting the heart of the user. And we say, wow. When I said that in the first service, I got some eyes that were like, oh boy. You mean that when I delete the history of my internet, that doesn't take care of it all? No, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, it doesn't. And so people have things on us. Now, here's the amazing. We get afraid because of what man can do to us. But let me tell you what the scripture says. The Bible says on that great and glorious day, everything that was done in darkness will be exposed by the light. And so here's the thing. You think you can fake everybody out? Look, I'm Joe Christian. Look, I, look at what I do. Look at the ministry that I'm a part of. You think you faked everybody out? The only one that you haven't faked out is the only one that it really matters. And that's God. You haven't faked him out. He says on that day, every careless word, every careless thought that you had, I'm going to bring it out, I'm going to put it up in lights. You thought Tim was great? Look at what he was thinking about when he was preaching. 
That's why I don't think that we're all just going to be sitting there laughing and having a great time on that judgment day. It's going to be a hard day for every one of us. And so those secret ambitions are going to come out. We hide things, and we hide things well. Now notice the next thing that comes out. The reason why we're so easily deceived is because we are a part of sporadic and shallow fellowship. So we come to church, and we're a part of a church service. But here's the problem. We, when we come to church is the question. Now one thing that, I, that the elders have been struggling with is the church here in Sugar Grove continues to grow. We continue to grow. New people are coming in all the time. But here's the problem. Our attendance, uh, or our uh, church family grew, I want to say it was like 12 or 13% this last year. But what didn't grow so much was our attendance. I want you to know that on Easter Sunday, we were 700, Keith, how many? 740 people or something like that. And then the next Sunday, we were over 200 people down from that. That our average attendance is around 550 people, give or take a little bit. And yet, our church family is somewhere in the neighborhood of 800 people. That means one-third of our people on any given Sunday are not here. Now, you can come up with all the reasons why you're not here, and that's fine. But the question is, how real will your fellowship be with your brothers and sisters in Christ? How will they know who you are and you know who they are if you're not here? You won't. Now, we get you here. Okay, so I've guilt-tripped you in. You shouldn't miss Sunday's mornings. You've heard that. That's great. You get here. Here's the problem. Our fellowship is awful shallow. I want you to think about the last couple weeks you've been at church And I want you to ask yourself, when was the last time that a conversation of the spiritual nature came up? Where you or the person standing next to you uttered the words, you know what, brother or sister in Christ, I'm really struggling with some sin. I don't know what to do with these thoughts. Every thought I have is is, it's an issue of lust. Every word I say is an issue of anger. My wife and I, we're fighting like cats and dogs. We, we can't get it together. Would you pray for me? When was the last time you heard that? You know, I don't know about you, Bob, but I can't get in the Word to save my life. But I can get on Facebook. I can watch TV. I can do all these other things, but I can't get in the Word. Would you pray for me? When was the last conversation you had at Village Bible Church that had that kind of nature to it? We don't. We're talking, and, and I'm as guilty of it as well. We're talking about the great hockey game last night. We're talking about the two miserable sports teams, baseball teams that we've got right now. None of them are any close to winning a World Series. We talk about the kids. We talk about the job. And here we're a part of a fellowship dedicated to growing that we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And so what happens? We leave this fellowship, and we go back to our lives that are full and deep in sin. And the one thing that God has laid before us, we throw by the wayside and we come in as spectators and we say some nice things to the people that we're around and smile, I'm great, you're great, everything's great. And we go home and we struggle with sin. This is the problem with American Christianity. It's superficial, it holds secrets, it's sporadic and it's shallow. I don't talk much about church politics from the pulpit. It's not my my way, but I'm going to speak to one thing very quickly, and I don't mean to do it to create any kind of political nature, but the elders a year ago made a decision that we didn't want this kind of church. We didn't want this kind of Christianity, and we made a decision. It was a willful decision. We knew it wasn't going to be all that popular, 
But what that was is that for our members, that we felt that it was important that every year our members would sign a, a, a membership commitment. And I've got to be honest with you, it's one of the most unpopular decisions that we've had. Some people are pretty, pretty upset about it. And I want to share with you why our heart is there, because we don't want this. And what we see in the scriptures over and over again is when we call our people to commitment, they start remembering why they're members of a particular church. Why are they accounting for the things that they're doing? Why are they asking uh, for accountability? Why are they asking for you to get involved in their life? And so we said, you know what? Instead of signing something that I signed some almost uh, uh, 15 years ago, how great would it be for me each and every year to remember that I'm not a member of a church like that, but I'm in a, a part of a church, and I'm committing to you, the body, that when you see me living in a way that's contrary to the Word of God, I put out a welcome mat as a fellow member for you to get in my face and say, what in the world do you think you're doing? Why are you living that way? That what I'm asking for, what I'm committing to, is that I'm going to open myself up to confess my sins to you. Because isn't that what we're called to be? Isn't that what we're supposed to be about? If this is just our Sunday morning date, let me tell you something. I'm done. This is not what I've been called to be a part of. And if this church just continues to get bigger and bigger and the commitment becomes less and less, I want nothing to do with it. And it's not because of legalism. It's not because we want to rule with an iron fist. But we know that this kind of Christianity does nothing for the kingdom of God. But when the body comes together and it begins to join together in mind and spirit and say we are together on these things and we are going to fight for one another until the day we die, then that's a church that will change lives. And so you may disagree, and that's okay. It's a free country. But I want you to know the elder's heart is pure, it it desires these things to be done away with. And if you read the membership commitments, as we're signing them now for the first time, you will see that every one of them fights to break these things down. So, I leave that there. You can go and talk with all the elders and get mad at me, and that's okay. That's what I'm here for. So, let's go to this next question. The next question, once we've addressed the idea of how hard it is to come up with these things and to understand where they're at. Then the next question we must answer is, what is the evidence that determines one's standing? John has said you're either children of the devil or you're children of God. How do I know? How do I know which I am? Because let me tell you something, your eternity is staked on it. If you're children of God, the moment you die, you will stand in the glory of God and he will say, welcome, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into your season of rest. If you're not, if you're a children of the devil, then when you die, there will be no welcome. There will be no commendation. There will only be condemnation and punishment. So we better understand how we find ourselves in one camp or the other. And so there's two things I want us to pull from that. Number one is the following. Practice rebellion will show our allegiance to Satan. Practicing rebellion shows one's allegiance to Satan. How do we know that we are children of the devil? John tells us. Notice what he says in verse 8. He who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's works. So in verse 8, we are told that if we are living a life of sin, there's a chance that we may be a child of the devil. Now, how do we know that? Because a child will imitate his father. 
And if we're a child of the devil, we're going to imitate our father. Now notice what it says uh, in verse 8. We are going to reflect his character. Write that down. We're going to reflect his character. What do we do? We will act like our father. We'll be just like him. We'll carry his DNA. Jesus spoke to the people that attended church all the time. I should rephrase that, attended temple. The Pharisees. And one day he was talking with them in John 8, 44 and 45, and he points at them, no doubt, and he says, you're just like your father. Some of you have heard that as a child. Usually when you're told that, it's usually not positive. Either you're stubborn like your father, or you, you do, are disrespectful like your father, or you're full of anger like your father. And Jesus points to the Pharisees, and you're just like your daddy. And you say, well, we don't know who his daddy is. He tells us the devil. You're just like him. So you can be religious, you can look all clean and everything, and you can be just as dirty as your dad in hell. So his character. Now notice what it says. His character is that he's been sinning from the beginning. The idea here is that all throughout his life, what we see of the devil is that he's a sinner over and over and over again. There's a couple passages of Scripture I want you to write down. We don't have time to go into it this morning. But Ezekiel chapter 28, write this passage down. Ezekiel 28, verses 12 through 15. Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15. And Isaiah 14, 9 through 14. Isaiah 14, 9 through 14. Those are two passages that speak about what takes place in heaven when the devil falls from being Lucifer, the great, one of the great archangels. Now, we need to understand, well, what was the devil's problem? The problem was his character. God created him and all of the angels, and they were created uh, to worship and adore G- uh, to worship God and uh, to elevate him in worship day in and day out. But something happened in the devil because he started to look at himself differently. And his character began to ask the question, what about me? Now, this is important, so hang with me, okay? What about me? At some point, after worshiping God, he's seeing God in all his glory and everything, and somewhere down the line, we're not told what day it is, it's before the creation of the world, that the devil looks at God and says, you know what? Why do you get all the praise? Why do you get to make all the decisions? Why do you get to be the one that rules heaven and earth? Why do you get to do all these things? What about me? Did you know that pride stems from that very question? What about me? That's the the heart of pride, the issue that we deal with with pride. Always ask the question, has anybody asked me? Does anybody care what I think? And somewhere down the line, what the devil did is in his character, he asked the question, what about me? And so you want to know if you're a child of the devil? How many times does that question come up in your own mind? What about me? Does anybody care what I think? Does anybody care what, doesn't the world revolve around me? Doesn't the world need to check with me on things? When we act that way and we take God out of the equation, we become like our father, the devil. Because we start acting like him. His character comes out. But notice it's not just a character issue, but it's a conduct issue. Because we see that the character in Ezekiel 28, 12 through 15 is all about how great and marvelous the creation of Lucifer was. This great angel. And then something happens that his character within him, 
evil is found, sin is found in him, and pride begins to well up that he says, hey, I think I can be like God. I think I should have a chance to be worshipped. In Isaiah chapter 14, what happens is we have five I will statements that Lucifer makes. Every one of them supersedes God. I will do better than God. I will reach higher than God. I will be elevated higher than God in every way. And so what happens is, is so a man thinks, so he also acts. And so not only do we carry the ideas of our father if we are a child of the devil, but now we start acting like him. Because what does he do? He doesn't think, boy, you know, God should be checking with me. I'm, I'm better than God in a lot of ways. He doesn't say, but you know what? Being second, second is okay. I mean, God's pretty good, and I'll just plan on being second. No, he says, you know what? I want God's place. So you want to know if you're a child of the devil? It doesn't mean you have to be Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, or Saddam Hussein. You don't have to be some killer. You don't have to be some range lunatic who does terrible things. You need to do two things. Number one, you need to start thinking that you're better than God. And number two, start living your life absent of what God really is supposed to have in your life. Say, you know what, God? I don't care what you say. I'm going to do it my way. Sin is lawlessness. It's rebellion. And so rebel your life. If your life is one of rebellion from God, even in the small things, you need to question in your heart, are you a child of the devil or are you a child of God? You don't have to be as bad as the devil is. You just have to follow his modus operandi. Now, number two, answering this question means then, how do we know if we're uh, an one that is um, allied with the Savior, it involves practicing righteousness. Practicing righteousness shows our allegiance to the Savior. So just as we looked at the pursuit of following our uh, father, the devil's ways, so the believer follows the ways of God. Notice what John says again in verse 7. He who does what is right, what is, right is righteous just as he is righteous. Jesus Christ is righteous. Notice what he says later on in verse 9. Because God's seed remains in him, he cannot go on sinning because he's been born of God. If you're a child of God, then you're going to live differently. And the reason why is because you have, and we use this term, you have been regenerated. You have been born again. And if you've been born again, then that means there's a change. I want you to write these three things down. What happens when we're born again, first of all, is a work of transformation. There's a work of transformation. You are no longer a child of the devil. You are now a child of God. You are no longer dead, but now you're alive. You are no longer a child of wrath, but now you're a son who is given love and mercy lavished upon him. And there's this transformation that takes place. And so when we heard today about remembering the day that we met Jesus Christ, the question we have to ask is, what was my life before Christ? What is my life now after If you can't make a determination on what has changed, there's a problem. Because if you've met Jesus, you're going to be changed. There's no question, there's no wondering, you will be changed. The way you used to live and the way you live now will be two completely different things. Notice the next thing that he says. There will be a walk of consecration. In verse 7, we will live righteously. When you're a child of God, you are going to pursue the pure life in Christ. Will you do it perfectly? No. No. Almost fell off the stage there. No. You won't do it perfectly. But you will do it as a life. 
And when you fail, you'll, you'll struggle with it. And you'll say, that's not the life of holiness that God has called me to be. But my pursuit in life, every day I wake up in life, isn't to be a good father, isn't to be a good husband, isn't to be a good caterer, isn't to be a good pastor, it isn't to be a good elder. It is to love the Lord God with all my heart, mind, and strength. And everything that flows through that conduit will affect every other part of my life. Some of us try to be all these different things. Oh, that I'll be a good employee, that I'll be a good uh, person, that I'll be a good husband, a good father, and all these things. And never do you deal with the core issue. Am I the guy that God has called me to be? And if I'm that, my kids are going to be blessed. If I'm serving God and walking righteously with my God, then my wife is going to be honored and blessed. And she's going to say, I've got the greatest husband in the world. He may make mistakes, but he walks closely with his God. It's a walk of consecration. One final thing it is, it is uh, a want for separation. Notice what he says, he cannot go on sinning. I want you to think about that passage of scripture with two things. We used to have a dog and a cat. We still have a dog. We give them up though if you want them. Uh, I'll give you a year's supply of food. Um, but we had a dog and a cat and every once in a while it would be bath time. And our Cocker Spaniel would jump in, and he would enjoy it. It was bath time, and he liked the water and stuff like that. Then we would take old little cat, and we would take the cat, and it was stinky and stuff like that, and we'd put it in the water. Now, there are two natures. I don't know if you know this. One of a dog and one of a cat. The dog sits there and gets to home. He he starts liking the bathtub. The cat, what does the cat do? I'm out of here. I want nothing to do with it. I will fight you. I don't care how big you are, big fat Timmy. I'm going to beat you down. I'm going to claw you. I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to do whatever I can. I don't want to be in there. Let me tell you something. And I don't mean to be uh, funny at all about this. We've got way too many Christians that are like my dog when it comes to wallowing in sin and not enough cats. The child of God When they sin, they will stop and they will say, what in the world was I thinking? One of my favorite movies at a time, uh, there's a guy that is trying not to uh, uh, tell a, a lie. Or he's trying to tell a lie and he has to tell the truth. And at one point he has told the truth and he's thinking about what he has said. And he's brushing his teeth and he takes his toothbrush and he sticks out his tongue. He just starts just brushing the heck out of his tongue. Like, what? Get that out of my mouth. I hate that. We don't do that as Christians. One thing I have prayed for is that I will mortify my sin. That when I sin, I know I'm going to sin. But that when I do it, I am going to stop and be like, why? Why did I do that? What 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 was I thinking? I hate that. There are things in my life, especially my self-control with my words. I say things, my friends, and I hate myself for it. I hate it because I know every time that that stupid stuff comes out of my mouth, only trash pursues. And I hate it. Do you have that view of your sin? That you hate it? That when it happens, if not, man, where's the Holy Spirit in your life? Where is he? Where is the checks and balance in your life that says, hey, you're not supposed to be doing that. Hello, Dumbo. What are you thinking? Why are you going down there? There should be a want for separation. 
Oh, how we need to hear this message this morning. This isn't easy to preach. I'm going to go home and I'm going to beat myself up, to be honest with you, all day long over this passage. And you say, well, where's the, where is the assurance? The assurance is if you can pass this test, you're not perfect, but you understand what you've been delivered from. So let me ask you this. Let me give you some action points and let's go home. Action point number one, it is time once and for all for the people in this church to get real about their faith. And I'm included. You think this is a game? You think you can hang here with your parents and just kind of live it up and, and, and say, well, I'm a believer. I, I professed my salvation. You think you can? And, and I'm not saying this to hurt our guests, but you can be at a Christian college and think, you know, I'm at Wheaton College, a great Christian academy, and, uh, and you know, I'm a believer. Let me tell you something. The words that scare me the most are Jesus' words that say, not everyone on that day that says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, if we would burn that into our minds, if we would burn that into our hearts. Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord. Oh, how much have I said, Lord, Lord, in my life? Am I in there? Am I a part of it? You say, Tim, well, I've saved. Once saved, always saved. Let me tell you this. Then why does Paul say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling? This is serious business, my friends. Let's make sure we're right with God, and let's make sure we're of God and not of the devil. Number two, remain faithful to Christ, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how hard it is. Guys, I know how hard it is to live a holy life. It's not easy. I know what it means to fight sin. I look at the things of this world, and there are so parts of me, I watch commercials, and I say, boy, that's the life. Just give me some of that. I look at the things of this world and I just wish they would plot me in front of that great buffet line and give me a a nice uh, um, handkerchief to cover my clothes so I don't get too dirty so I can just get in there with both hands and eat it up. It looks great. I'm like Moses who sees the delicacies of Egypt that will bring pleasure for a season but will end in destruction. Fight it. Fight it for all that you have in you, because in it you will save your soul. Remain faithful to Christ. And number three, how do we know we can do this? Because the fight is already won. Remember that. I love these verses. If this verse wasn't in there, this would be a hopeless message. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Did you know the reason why we can call ourselves children of God is because on that cross of Calvary, Jesus hung there and bled for you and I. And at the end of his bleeding, he said the following, it is finished. It's done. The devil has been disarmed. I've made a public spectacle of him by triumphing over him with the cross. And as a result of that, my children no longer have to say yes to sin, but now they have every opportunity to say no to sin because greater is he that is in you, my child, than he that is in the world. And if we would live in response to that, oh, how different our life would be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. And Lord, there are passages of Scripture that we struggle with greatly. And this one, in front of these people, I will tell you, I struggle with. I want to be your child. I want to know that I'm your child. And I believe that I can. 
But Lord, I just don't want to assume it because I've said some things or because I am involved in a church or, or because people think I do a real good job. But I want to know that I've passed your test and that I'm known by you and that I'm loved by you. And Father, the only way I can know that is if I live like you. If I pursue the things that my Father in heaven pursues. If I love my brother. If I do what is right. Then you say that I'm your child. No child of the devil will pursue those things on an ongoing basis. So Father, I pray that I would show myself as a true child of yours. Because people will see a life of faithfulness. And a battle that wages within me to say no to sin and ungodly things and pursue the righteousness of Christ Jesus. Lord, I don't just pray that for myself, but I pray that for all my brothers and sisters in this place. Lord, gone are the days of just playing church. It is time for us to get serious. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be a reality in this place, that we would walk away transformed, that we would walk away consecrated for the work that you've given us and that because of that we would know and that we would desire only the things that come from you, not of this world. Because we are reminded that the things of this world will pass away, but one who, does, who lives righteously and does the will of God lives forever, as you tell us in this book of First John.